Thanks, you guys. Uh, so we're in this series, you know, I won't give you all the summaries again, but um, we're looking at the life of Jesus. And Jesus is the very center of God's redemption story, what God, God is trying to restore or, or um, recreate his broken creation, speak light into the darkness, what we just spoke about. And when Jesus enters the scene, uh, his shorthand for all of that is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. So his language of kingdom or kingdom of God, of God's reign, that's his shorthand for saying God is restoring the broken, fractured creation you find yourself in. Very briefly this morning, I want to just pause a a body of um, teaching that Jesus gives that Matthew's assembled in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of his gospel called the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, and we could look at, it's such a rich text. There's no possible way we're going to, I'm not trying to speak about all of it. And I, it occurred to me as I was praying and sitting this morning, uh, I could have easily spoken on, uh, you know, consider the sparrows, the birds of the air. And how much more valuable are you than those? And that would be a good word for our community, just to remember that God who cares for the birds cares for you. Or we could have talked about do not worry. It's all part of that same text, do not worry. And, and, and just maybe I should say it's not like you should hear that as like, well, I'll pull up your socks and quit worrying, quit being anxious. And now you just feel guilty as well as worrying. This is, the Sermon on the Mount is framed in such a way that it's to be understood that this is what life looks like when Jesus is king. When the one who sits on the throne sits on the throne of our lives. And Jesus beginning to give sort of uses, use imagination to say, this is what life could look like when Jesus reigns. And this is what life in the spirit, what the spirit will produce in you. But I want to pick up a slightly different text uh, this morning from the sermon, because uh, I also think it speaks to our moment. Uh, and, and I just want to uh, dwell on it. So you will have heard this text before. It's very well known, even outside the church, actually, this text is reasonably, at least the first part, is reasonably reasonably well known, although uh, largely dismissed. Uh, I'm going to read it, therefore, from a paraphrase, okay? This is the message, Eugene Peterson's The Message. I'm going to need to put on my glasses because I can't see that anymore. Let's come to that. All right, so let me read to you from Matthew chapter 5. Verses 43 to 48. And if you're, most Bibles will have a little title in that, for that paragraph called Love Your Enemies. So hear this, God's words written in this paraphrase. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. Well, I'm challenging that, says Jesus. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energy of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, 
to everyone, regardless, the good, the bad, the nice, the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. And if you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying to you is this. Grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. So, the greatest commandment, Jesus says, when he gets challenged in an earlier, well, in a different part of Matthew, he gets challenged to summarize the law, and he says the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus now expands this understanding of who neighbor is uh, to its, its, you know, its furthest reaches, really. He opens it right up. So your neighbor isn't just the one who buys you a latte. They're good neighbors, by the way. But that's not the only person Jesus has in mind. Okay, now all of a sudden the definition of neighbor comes to include your enemy. And the Greek word here, I can't even pronounce it, so I won't even try it. But the Greek word for enemy... Uh, I mean, it means enemy, but it, like, it carries the idea of adversary, the one who's opposed to you, the one who's against you in some way. And for Jesus, speaking in his context, it probably would conjure up images of the Roman soldier just down the road here, or just like right at the edge of the crowd. Uh, the occupying Romans, right? And all of the imagery the Roman Empire built, so these guys with their funny hats and their swords and their armor and all that, and they're standing right in your face and you're reminded constantly who the enemy is because they're in your land. Or it could include for Jesus the rival uh, religious voices and the people with different visions of what the kingdom of God will look like. And Jesus confronts some of those along the way. For us, I think enemies, we tend to think, I don't know if this is entirely true of you all, but I think when we think of enemies, we sort of have a picture in our mind. If you just close your eyes for a moment, think enemy, you might sort of conjure up this mind of some extremist, like jihadist living in a cave in Afghanistan with an AK-47 strapped to his chest or something. Um, And I'm like, well... Guess, but I'm never going to meet that person. <laughs> so as long as that's what I think of my enemy, it feels like this 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 teaching of Jesus seems a little bit um, abstract and doesn't really touch where I live. Like if the enemy is some crazy person in some far reaches of the world that I'll never ever see, then this isn't really a call for me to do anything. You see the disconnect. But if you go back to sort of the Greek, broader Greek term in the sense of the enemy being someone who opposes, someone who uh, stands against you, well, let me recast it for a moment. I mean, perhaps in the last year, you have had some tense conversations with people around pandemic restrictions, whether there should be more restrictions or less restrictions. I've spoken to some of you... 
who, and not entirely untrue in my life, who have friends or family members that have landed very differently from where you've landed in terms of how you understand how you ought to live in this moment. So maybe you are uh, very cautious and you want to sort of follow all of the, uh, the, the, the health guidelines to, you know, cross your T's, dot your I's, get it all exactly so. And then you've got family members who dismiss most of them or all of them or vice versa. I don't know. And you might have had some very strange conversations with people that you actually like, but they're diametrically opposed to who you are or how you think we ought to live at this moment. Or perhaps you found yourself criticizing politicians on a variety of levels, federal, provincial, uh, municipal, because of their handling or in maybe your mind mishandling of the pandemic. And you find yourself incredibly critical of them and they're, you know, they're just doing stupid things or daft things or saying daft things or whatever it is you think they're doing. And what seems to have become socially acceptable uh, in our society is to write people off. Well, that person's just an idiot. They're not, you know, they don't hold my view. They're just an idiot. They're foolish. They're reckless. They're stupid, right? And we sort of cast them off with a few slurs, some more colorful than others, I'm sure. Um, And it's interesting to me that what is socially acceptable in our society, Jesus likens to murder, by the way, (laughs) Right? Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you call someone raka, which loose translation, fool or empty head or idiot, it's like you're murdering them. The whole Sermon on the Mount, John Stott summarizes it. He picks out one phrase of Jesus. says, the summary statement of the Sermon on the Mount is, you shall not be like them. The call of the Christian as we allow Jesus to take kingship of our lives, as we allow Jesus' rule to penetrate our lives and our world, is to not be like the world, to not be like them. And not just to say, oh, that person's an idiot. That person's stupid. That person doesn't, you know. And we cut them out of our lives, which Jesus likens to murder. It turns out the enemies aren't just these guys living in a cave who are plotting whatever they're plotting. Uh, But it turns out enemies, people who are opposed to me, might be my spouse or might be my co-workers or might be uh, people I go to school with or the neighbor across the street or someone in my family or someone on social media. Turns out our enemies might look just like us. And Jesus calls us to love them, not call them out but to love them. Okay, Martin Luther King, commenting on this and other texts, said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And Martin Luther King knew a few things about enemies. The instruction here is to love your enemy, and pray for them. And prayer, and this is where I want to zero in a little bit, prayer might be the place, might be the only place uh, where you're able to love them. You might be so upset with people's, what they're saying or what they're doing, and you might disagree so so viscerally with them uh, that really the, the best place and the beginning place for you to love them is to pray for them, right? Pray for those who persecute you, who are opposed to you. 
who set themselves against what you think should be happening. Love and pray, and prayer being an expression of how we love. Now, just let me just contextualize this a tiny little bit more. Uh, has it ever occurred to you, uh, Jesus is now teaching the, the crowd, but Jesus' teaching isn't only his words, right? It's his actions and all that he does. And so uh, it's very insightful to me when you look at who Jesus calls to be kind of his inner gang, his followers, his apprentices, 12 men who are named. Among them, you've got Matthew, the tax collector, right? Who is a collaborator with Rome. And you've got Simon, who is nicknamed or referred to as Simon the Zealot. Okay, we talked about zealots a few weeks ago. These are people that, are, that look to use violence to oppose Rome. Right? I can't think of two more people diametrically opposed than Matthew, a tax collector, a collaborator with Rome, and Simon the Zealot. Right? Think masker, anti-masker, vaxxer, anti-vaxxer. That's who Jesus is called into his inner circle. <laughs> right? No, that is it. We just sang Psalm 23, and we tend to think of all the sort of the imagery of the beginning. There's that phrase in uh, that part in Psalm 23 where it says, you'll prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. And I used to read that as, well, you know, I'll be feasting and my enemies are out there watching. Too bad for them, right? I'm feasting in the presence of my enemies. They're out of, or maybe, <laughs> maybe it's the image of the enemies at the table with me. I'm feasting in the presence of my enemies. They're at the same table and they're no longer enemies. Like Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, who eat, who must have eaten so many meals together in the presence of Jesus. So this is Jesus living out this text. Love your enemies. Pray for those who are opposed to you, persecute you. But he goes on in the teaching, if you look carefully at Matthew 5. Another thing I used to think about this teaching is if I pray for my enemies, my enemies will change. They'll smarten up. They'll get onto my page. They'll think like me. They'll agree with me. And what I'm praying for is that they'll change. And I'm increasingly thinking that Jesus' invitation to pray for my enemies isn't so they'll change, it's so that I'll change, that I'll be transformed that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God will, will expand here in my heart. Right? This is what it says. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of the Father. Right? So as I pray for my enemies, as I pray for those, rather than dismiss them, rather than call them out on social media and say asinine things and destroy them and destroy their character and murder them in Jesus' figure of speech, Rather than that, I pray for them, I actually become who God has called me to be, which is his child, a child of the Father. The text goes on to say, this is what God does. This is what God does. And the illustration Jesus gives here is he sends rain. Doesn't matter if you're good or bad. You're going to get rain. You're going to get sunshine. God is generous to all. Later on, Paul's reflecting on this very thing. He says, while we're yet sinners, while we're yet enemies of God, 
Jesus died for us. Jesus extends his love, his generosity, his kindness to us. This is who God is. This is what our lives will look like as children of that God. Right? We're imitators. As, As God's kingdom begins to take root, as God's spirit is at work within us, this is what life will look like. This is what sets us apart. Jesus says it like if you, all you do is love the person who buys you the latte or greets you, who's kind to you, you're no different than everyone else, but you're not to be like them. You are to be different from everyone else. And this is one of the places I think Christians will stand apart. This, I believe, will be a prophetic stance in our culture. If you love your enemies and you pray for them rather than just calling them out. This will be a profound witness to a watching world that God is here, that God is present. And it's a challenge, which is why I'm saying to you, it's God's spirit within you, right? That's the whole context of this sermon. It's not like pull up your own socks. It's with God's help, as Jesus, with Jesus as king, this is what life will begin to look like. The last verse can trip people up in this section. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you can kind of hear that and think, well, I can't be perfect, and you dismiss the whole teaching. But simply, uh, the the word perfect here is more a sense of wholeness, uh, serving God with everything within you. Um, But just remember what I just said, is this is God at work within you. We're not going to get it right all the time on our own, but as we allow the Spirit of God to work in us, to work through us, this will be a different posture. People will see us as different. And not because I'm better, but because God is at work. Do you see that? This is one of these supernatural moves. I'm not going to be able to love my enemies on my own strength. Not a chance. So let me just leave you with a practice and a story. Um, as I said earlier, enemies or people that oppose us aren't vague. It's not just a vague concept. If you leave it as a vague concept, then this teaching will remain vague as well. Enemies always have faces and they have names. And if you're honest, you could probably name some of them now. People who, for whatever reason, have opposed you. They've said unkind things about you in the workplace, or they've said, um, or they're saying unkind things about people you like on social media or whatever. They're just diametrically opposed to what you think should be happening right now. We can name people in all of those categories. And it's precisely what I want you to do in this spiritual exercise. I'm going to give you a, a, a couple minutes in a moment. Um, I'll just set this up and I'll read the story and then we'll do the practice while the, the, the band will come and, and, and lead another song, a closing song. But the invitation is for you to literally write a name down. I want you to write it down. If you're feeling really sheepish, put their initials or write it in code or something, whatever, I don't care, but, but physically write it. So if you're at home, quickly run and get a pen and paper or grab one that's close by or whatever, type it into your phone. It doesn't matter. But I want you to actually record it not just think it, but, but scribe it in some way, digitally or, or you know, old school. Um, 
Make it tangible, because enemies, people, enemies in the broad sense, people that we don't agree with have faces and names. And as you write those people down, I want you to commit to something this week. Pray for them this week. Pray for them. Pray for them. Let me give you, uh, uh, let me speak to your imagination for a moment on this point. This is a tremendous story from Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, which was published, you know, uh, over 20 years ago now. So if you've read it, you've probably forgotten, so we're good. Um, Here's the story. It's tremendous. At the beginning of this chapter, I, Yancey, I mentioned this small group discussion on forgiveness that he was in. And it revolved around the case of Jeffrey Dahmer. And some of you, that name rings a bell. Some of you, not at all. Jeffrey Dahmer was an American serial killer. Like, he killed, like, a lot of people. And so Yancey's in this group, and they're discussing whether someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, like someone evil, could ever experience forgiveness. And like many such discussions, it kept drifting away from personal illustrations to the abstract and the theoretical. We discussed horrific crimes like Bosnia and the Holocaust. Almost by accident, the word divorce came up. And to our surprise, Rebecca spoke up. Rebecca is a quiet woman. And in the weeks of meeting together, she'd rarely opened her mouth. But at the mention of divorce, though, she proceeded to tell her story. She'd married a pastor and it's who had had some renown as a retreat leader. It became apparent, however, that her husband had a dark side. He dabbled in pornography, and his trips to other cities included soliciting prostitutes. Sometimes he asked Rebecca for forgiveness, sometimes he did not. In time, he left for another woman, Julianne. Rebecca told us how painful it was for her, a pastor's wife, to suffer this humiliation. Some church members who had respected her husband treated her as if, it, as if his sexual straying had been her fault. Devastated, she found herself pulling away from human contact, unable to trust another person. She could never put her husband out of mind because they had had children together and she had to make regular contact with him in order to arrange his visitation privileges. Rebecca had this increasing sense that unless she forgave her former husband, a hard lump of revenge would be passed on to their children. Now here's the key point I want you to hear. For months, she prayed. At first, her prayers seemed as vengeful as some of the Psalms. She asked God to give her ex-husband, quote, what he deserved. Finally, she came to the place of letting God, not herself, determine what he deserved. Right? To see how she's being changed. One night, Rebecca called her ex-husband and said in a shaky, strained voice, I want you to know that I forgive you for what you've done to me. And I forgive Julianne, too. He laughed off her apology, unwilling to admit that he'd done anything wrong. Despite his rebuff, the conversation helped Rebecca get past her bitter feelings. A few years later, Rebecca got a hysterical phone call from Julianne, the woman who had stolen her husband. 
She'd been attending a ministerial conference with him in Minneapolis, and he'd left the hotel room to go for a walk. A few hours had passed, and Julianne heard from the police. Her husband had been picked up for soliciting a prostitute. On the phone with Rebecca, Julianne was sobbing. I never believed you, she said. I kept telling myself that even if what you said was true, he'd changed. And now this, I feel so ashamed and hurt and guilty. I have no one on earth who could understand. But then I remembered the night you said you forgave us. And I thought maybe, maybe you could understand what I'm going through. I know it's a terrible thing to ask, but could I come and talk to you? Somehow Rebecca found the courage to invite Julianne over that same evening. They sat in her living room, cried together, shared stories of betrayal, and ended praying together. Julianne now points to that night as the time she became a Christian. Right? When you love your enemies with the help of God, there's only one explanation. God is in the room. Our group was hushed when Rebecca told her story. She was describing forgiveness not in the abstract, but in a nearly incomprehensible scene of human linkage. Husband stealer and abandoned wife kneeling side by side on a living room floor praying. Get that image in your head. For a long time, I had felt foolish about forgiving my husband, Rebecca told us. But that night, I realized the fruit of forgiveness. Julianne was right. I could understand what she was going through because I'd been there too. And because I'd been there too, I could be by her side instead of her enemy. God will one day... Prepare a feast in the presence of our enemies. Friends, this is the call in this moment. That instead of calling out the people we disagree with on all kinds of fronts, in all kinds of ways, we hear Jesus' invitation. And by the power of his spirit, we love and we pray. Let me invite the team up. And I just am going to invite you during this song uh, to write down the names of some people you want to pray for this week. But make it tangible. Name these people, even just with an initial. And then lean into Jesus' invitation this week to pray for them. After this song, I'll be back, and we'll just do a benediction, and we'll be done.